Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Front and center, your next move with your money following today's big CPI print. Did today's jobs report just, or today's report rather, just give fresh oxygen to the bulls? We have weekly jobless claims as well. Our investment committee is standing by to weigh in and tackle that question. Joining us for the hour here on set at Post 9, Josh Brown, Jenny Harrington, and Jim Labenthal. So let's get a check on the markets at noon Eastern time or thereabouts. We are seeing some green on the screen across the board. Fractional moves higher, specifically for the Dow, up about half of 1%, just about 180 points to the upside, 35,304. The S&P 500, 4486, that's up about one half of 1%, 18 points to the upside. And then the Nasdaq composite up about one third of 1%, the underperformer, if you want to call it that, up about 46 points, 13,768 is your last trade there. Now, we will have much more on that market's move coming up. We've lost some momentum since the highs of the session coming off the heels of that CPI report. But first, we have a trade alert. Josh is making a new big buy in the energy industry. So, Josh, not tell big. us about why, not big. why it's rigged. Yeah. Not big. I was talking to Jim on the show about Transocean. This is a stock that I had traded extensively, I don't know, 15 years ago during the last uh, great oil market. Super cycle. Yeah, sure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's a very small buy. It's a very small company, quite frankly. It used to be much bigger. Um, But when you look at uh, when you look at the technicals here, this is a stock that's bottomed out and has been consolidating for quite some time. It is now snapping this very, very long term downtrend. Not quite in an uptrend yet, but that's the first step. Most of its competitors have gone bankrupt. There are very few uh, very few pure play deep water drilling plays in the market. And this is one of the larger ones. It's not the best run one. That would be Noble. Maybe Jimmy will disagree with me. This is the one that's saddled with the most debt, but has the most to gain by day rates going higher. So they've got to pay down a lot of that debt. It's about $7 billion. That explains why it's a single-digit stock. But the, the, the tailwind that they're going to have in the second half of the year, in my view, puts them in a position for the first time in a long time to fix the balance sheet and start uh, producing upside surprises. So it's a very tough business. It's not a business that does well unless there is real demand uh, for that kind of deep sea drilling. Uh, but when there is, these stocks work in a big way. So I have a very, very small position here. I'm hoping to add over time. I'm new to the story, uh, but I'm paying close attention. You know who's not new to this story? <laughs> Say more. Yeah, the other guy at the end of the table over there, it's Jim, Farmer Jim Labenthal. This is a name that you have been talking about for quite some time. You've been involved in it for years at this point now. I wonder, when you look at Josh's thesis for why he wants to own it, 
and compare it to the reasons why you initially bought it yeah. and why you're still holding on to it. I, I wonder what reconciles and maybe what, what what's new to you. Yeah, well, it's first off, it's great whenever I'm on the same side with Josh. That feels very comforting. But it's even more comforting when the technicals shake hands with the fundamentals, which is what you've got going on here. I've been in the stock for two years. It's up about threefold since then. I'm not selling a share. I think I've said I think this is going into double digits. And the reason why is on the fundamental side, you have a very small number of deep water drilling rigs in the world. Very my, small my number. Work, my work suggests only about half of their rigs are currently under contract, which means about two thirds. About two thirds. So as prices rise, they can then get that that upside with uh, with new leases. So you're on the money with where the next catalyst is. They have a third of their fleet, about 12 rigs are idle, cold stack. This is going back to like the oil price collapse of 2014, 2015. And you said rightly that this is a tough business. Because it's a tough business, you have tough operators operating these companies. And what the management of this company is doing is they're saying to the oil exploration and production companies, it's like Mad Max, you want to get out of here? You talk to me. Uh, maybe that was more Pesci. I'm not sure. Um, but doing like a bronze tail. Yeah, it was, I didn't do that up. right. But carrying on, the day rates are pushing up to 500,000 a day right now, which is a great rate. That's a money-making rate. They're going to get these 12 rigs off of cold stack, maybe not all at once, but over the next six to 12 months. And their EBITDA is going to just leap up. It's going to leap up. And they're very tough operators. So what they're saying to the E&P companies, not only are you going to have to pay the extra money and the higher day rates, you're going to have to pay the reactivation costs of reactivating these rigs. Now, just to buttress this, last thing I'll say on this. About hey, a Jenny's month ago. Asleep, so. Sorry, this is exciting. No, no. Shit, this is her type of stuff. I, 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 this is her type of stuff. There's no dividend. She'll like it. Right? No, we're <laughs> we're going to talk about the energy dividend. Right? A month ago, but you should know this. Okay. You probably do. A month ago, they announced a contract for three of their rigs Mexico. that starts in 2025. It starts in late 2025. Yeah. That's where the ENP companies are, Dom. The exploration and production companies are trying to lock up rigs that start two years from now. Okay, if you're in a cyclical business like this, this is the part of the cycle you want to invest in. Low supply, high demand, you're controlling price. Maybe I want to see two charts real quick, and then we'll, we'll pass the ball to Jenny. Give me Noble Energy, N-E. Look at this. Look at the stock. It looks like uh, it, it looks like a, a, a tech stock. Um, not 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 three. Maybe hours like worth. a one year. What make a year? Year oh to God. There you All go. All right. Look. I mean, look at this. Uh, same same space. Better operator. Better balance sheet. Better. 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 One more. Um, let's do OII. Oceaneering. This is like robots, subsea robots for, uh, for uh, drilling, for deep water drilling. These, these stocks are already working. Um, they're better companies, quite frankly. So the opportunity in rig is that they can improve the quality of the business. And you need a tailwind to do that. You can't do that in a declining demand environment. Very hard to turn yourself around. So when at least you have the secular trends at your back, that gives you the opportunity to fix. What, what was this, a $50 stock once upon a time? I think it was a $100, $100 stock, but it was, also, it was also like a sub $2 stock three years ago. That's All right. right. So, so this is interesting only because you're talking about plays that could arguably can be considered the tip of the spear with regard to a move higher across the entire energy complex. Started already. It, right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So if you take a look at the, the, the rotation that's already happening between technology and energy-related stocks in those sectors, but Jenny, the reason why I ask and I point to you is because you're in energy names right. that are not akin to a transocean or an oceaneering, so to speak, right? You're talking about some of the pipeline plays, the toll collectors, the dividend payers, to Josh's point, 
Is there anything about this particular move or these sets of trades that maybe gets you more excited about that more leveraged side to the, the, the energy market, well, like exploration and production or ocean services and, and, and deep water drilling? It really can't, right? So I manage a portfolio that the equity income strategy that I manage has a 5% or better dividend yield hurdle on it. So I can't buy Transocean. A long time ago, it actually had a super juicy dividend. And even back then, I always stayed away from it because it was too leveraged and it was too dicey relative to energy. So like my job is to deliver a steady and consistent income stream for my clients. So what I love about this conversation is it says to me, Jen, you're 100% on track. And when Jim says the EMP company are locking up rigs for the next two years. You know what that tells me? It tells me energy prices are staying high. And that's what I need for the enterprise products, the energy transfer, the Kinder Morgan, and then on the producer side, the pioneer in our international income strategy, we have Shell and Total. So what you're telling me is not, it's not luring me over to a different side of the market, but it's giving me tremendous comfort and conviction that for the strategy I manage, I'm in the right spot and I've been in the right spot for a long time. And so I can kind of sit back, relax a little bit, right? In our job, you can never really do that. But I can kind of sit back and relax and say like, hey, yeah, what I own for my clients, for the objectives of this portfolio are very, very well supported by the industry's broader expectations. Oh my God, you guys, we should launch a fund. What? Uh, on what? I don't know. All right. Anything. <laughs> All right. It's, it's just, the problem with dumb. I talk too long. No, no, no. You're, no, no, no. We, we, we're, we're just, I, I always have a tally in my head about just how much we're all kind of weighing into the conversation. The reason why I ask is because many of these oil names, to your, to your point, don't carry some of those dividends that can actually get you to But I own those too. And I, so it's important. It's not like, oh, if you want to uh, benefit from higher energy prices, like just buy the riskiest deep water drilling companies. <laughs> like, definitely not. I've been in this IEO uh, investment, which is the producers, American producers, uh, all in one ETF. Uh, I'm not picking and choosing which one. It's on fire right now. It's up 8% over the last quarter. It's leading the market. Um, it, it took most of this year off. Uh, quite frankly, it had been underperforming. Now it's finally up on the year. But let, I, I want to give you an idea of what some of the fundamentals look like uh, in here. The median price to sales in the IEO is 1.5 times. These are some of the cheapest stocks in the market. Not uh, average of the median of uh, nine times price to free cash flow, very cheap. 21% expected earnings per share growth for 2024. So these are companies that have earnings growth ahead of them, very low valuations. They've sat out eight months or, or six months of, of the rally uh, that we've seen this year. And you could own them individually or you could just own the group. So they're finally starting to move. They're up 5% year to date, about 10% uh, over the last quarter. And I think there's a lot of different ways to win. Jenny's ideas, Jim's ideas. But broadly speaking, it makes sense to me that energy is where the, the, the puck is headed. It, it seems to me that it's already heading there now because if you look at a one-month chart mm -hmm. of the reversion of that growth and value trade and specifically energy and technology, you start to see a real divergence happening again over there. Yeah, over and 80, 88% yeah. of the names in the IEO ETF are now above their 200-day, right. and, and, and that is new. Can I add one thing that I think is important okay. here? Because you know, crude oil has obviously rallied, but natural gas has not. OK, not compared to where we were a year ago. And there's a lot of room in this asymmetric trade for natural gas to go higher. There isn't much room for it to go lower from here. Okay. Uh, so there, there's that's another catalyst to the whole energy sector. All right. So now let's turn to the broader markets. Overall stocks are rallying, but well off their highs of the session on the back of this morning's CPI report. Let's bring in our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, into the conversation. 
Steve, I, I'm the initial read as I was kind of seeing that data alongside you folks was this was kind of a good number, not good enough from an inflation standpoint to really derail anything the Fed has going on. But the markets seem to be at least a little happy about it right now. Is that the right read or, or, or do we have to look a little bit deeper than that? No, I think that's the way to think about it. But I, I just parsed it into two different thoughts. The first is near term, when it comes to the September meeting, it very much takes uh, a rate hike off the table. There's still a bunch of data to come. The economy is running relatively strong or uh, surprisingly strong in the third quarter for a quarter that economists had thought was going to be down near zero. It looks like it's going to be up, I don't know, somewhere between two and four percent. Um, but then longer term, say out to the November meeting, uh, there's still some possibility out there. What happened right after this meeting, guys, I don't know if you have the probability charts. There you go. Who's, who's, who's better than you guys in the back there? September, 10 percent. That had been up near 15 or 20 percent. So there was some bid on the possibility of rate hike in September. That came down quite a bit. Take off September if you're a Fed watcher. And then come back again in October, November, where it, there's still some 25, 26 percent chance that they could be hiking rates. Um, one way to look at this number, guys, um, obviously there's the headline numbers that everybody looks at, the headline number and the core number, 4.8, 4.7, uh, and then the, the, uh, the, the headline number. But look at it another way, which is the three-month annualized rate, and it's come down quite a bit. 3.1 on core, 1.9 on headline. If this trend continues, the Fed is going to be at or near where it needs to get pretty soon, Dom. Right, so, so, Steve, what exactly then propels that to get over that big hurdle, right, to get back down towards that 2% target? You've spoken a lot, and so has Diana Olick, about the housing dynamic and how much that plays into this inflation conversation right now. There's a wide portion of America that's very intensely focused on what the future is for the real estate market and rents overall. Is that the big thing that needs to happen, a deceleration of living costs? to really get that inflation number back towards 2%. Yeah, and this is where, Dom, the micro meets the macro, so to speak. Um, housing coming off the boil, it went up a tick, actually, uh, in this report to 0.5%. Uh, that coming off the boil would be a big part of bringing down inflation. Uh, whether or not that happens is going to be a function of where mortgage rates are, whether or not people are, feel comfortable to say, hey, you know what, I have this 2 or 3% or 4% mortgage, and I'm okay with the idea of getting a new house with a 5 or 6% mortgage. 7% seems to be a barrier. And then you have this construction of apartments that's out there, and whether or not those rental apartments start to arbitrage either home rentals or home purchases to some point that, pr that puts some downward pressure on housing prices. The expectation is some of that is already in our rearview mirror that's already happened, but hasn't picked up in the index. And over the next several months, it's expected that that would be picked up and help bring down the CPI number. Hey, Steve, it's Jimmy. Um, I listened to you and Rick on Squawk Box this morning. Great discussion. And you guys were talking about the politics of inflation, price of eggs. I'm sure you remember that conversation. I wanted to ask them, thankfully, I've got you now. What about the politics next year of the Fed, you know, having caused potentially job losses right as inflation has come down, right? I mean, the workers have made it through two years of, of heart-rending inflation, and now the labor market may just start to weaken, particularly if they continue to raise rates. What's your thought on the politics behind that? Well, I mean, if it happens, Jim, and, and that's been part of the story we've been reporting, part of the surprise of the economy, that I'm surprised you're not, uh, you know, getting up around that table and doing a victory lap here because... <laughs> Um, I think you were like the lone soft landing voice. I was with you on a bunch of that. But, uh, you know, you should be doing that because the extraordinary moment we're living through 
and don't lose it because you don't get to live through extraordinary moments that often, is the idea that inflation is coming down and it's coming down around an unchanged unemployment rate. And so it hasn't happened yet. Jim, it may happen. We may get some loosening, some increase in the unemployment rate. Uh, the expectations now, though, are that it's, it, it's not necessarily going to happen in the amounts that had been expected. So, look, if we come off to three and a half to four percent, if we get out of this, I was even saying before, if we get out of this with a four and a half percent unemployment rate still historically low, I would count that as a victory uh, because it could go a lot higher and it would be a lot more painful if it did. But right now, it seems unemployment rate seems to be stuck where it is. It's been the three and a half, three, five, three, six uh, area for quite a while. And payrolls, look, 187, I'll take it. It's more than double the demographic growth of the labor force. All right. Steve Leisman with the context around the CPI. Thank you very much. We'll see you in a bit. Our next guest says that July is likely marked the peak of the Fed's rate hiking cycle. Gupreet Gill is the global fixed income strategist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. She joins us now live from London. Uh, it was a fascinating discussion throughout the course of the morning here on CNBC about just how important the CPI read was. One data point does not an overall trend make. But do you feel as though anything has fundamentally changed about the U.S. economic story with this particular CPI print? Hi, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'd say the key takeaway is that this CPI data does continue the disinflation trend that we saw in June. And when we make that assessment that July may have marked the peak in the Fed hiking cycle, it's based on the totality of data. And to just emphasize, that is the terminology that Chair Jay Powell used during the press conference. He said, what the Fed does in September is going to depend on the totality of data between the June meeting and the September meeting. And since then, we've had an employment cost index for the second quarter, which decelerated. We've had a jobs report that was mixed, but other measures such as the jobs workers gap is narrowing and consistent with rebalancing of the labor market. And today's CPI data also confirms that disinflation trend. So all of that leads us to believe that come September, the Fed isn't going to see a case to hike and actually come November, you will have accumulated sufficient evidence for the Fed to conclude that July was the peak. I would also emphasize that the Fed doing nothing at this point is actually the Fed doing something. And that is because policy rates are restrictive. So if the trend of disinflation continues, real rates are rising and that's going to tighten monetary conditions and actually help reinforce that disinflation trend. Hi, Gurpreet. It's Josh Brown. Thank you so much for joining us. The 10-year yield right now is the lowest yield on the curve, about 4%. Uh, the one-year is 5.3%, which I am telling people, grab as much of that as you can while it's still there. Um, but steepening has been the story this summer. At what point do you think we get out of inversion? Is that a 2023 story, or do we have to wait into 2024? How, and how much longer can we really sit with this inverted yield curve with a healthy economy and inflation moderating to the degree that it has? That's a great question. We are actually positioned for the U.S. yield curve to steepen in the forward space on the basis of like the economic backdrop. And so we do hope it is a 2023 story. Actually, when we came into the summer, we thought that rates but now would be range bound because we thought evidence of disinflation would cap the extent to which yields rise by the same token, strengthen the economy would cap the extent to which yields fall. Um, but we still think that if 
disinflation continues, the labour market remains resilient and the economy remains resilient, there is room for the yield curve to steepen from the current very flat levels. I would also just caution that over the summer, thin trading liquidity can distort market moves. Um, and there's lots of factors this summer or this past week or so that has influenced what's happened with US Treasury yields. We had rating actions um, against US sovereign debt and US regional banks. We had the Bank of Japan meeting, which led to broader term premium repricing in markets. And just big picture, you've seen markets pricing um, this optimism around a soft landing and the fact that the Fed cycle has peaked. All right. Capreet Gill at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. All right. So Capreet's not the only one on Wall Street leaning towards these so-called curve steepener trades, right? This morning on Worldwide Exchange, we spoke to Skylar Montgomery Koning over at TS Lombard, who has suggested the exact same trade with regard to her clients. This is a call on a more normalization of things to come. I wonder though, and Jenny, I'll look at you first for this. Is this a trade that you play for a trade or is this one that you think is more of a trend over the next say few quarters or years? Um, Okay, so you know, I'm very long-term oriented. I don't actually play anything for a trade, but it's an interesting thing. So I manage mostly equity portfolios, but I manage some fixed income portfolios too. And the conversation I've been having there with respect to exactly this is interesting. So for the better part of the past almost 10 years, I discouraged my clients from reinvesting in bonds as they matured. Over the past year and change, we've plowed bond allocations back into the very, very short end of the curve. And the conversation we're having now is, let's sit back and see what actually happens. And let's not plan exactly how we're going to reinvest those bonds when they mature, because I don't know what's going to happen. And so, but what I think is interesting is if I have bond, rather I do have bond portfolios that will mature in six to 18 months from now, as those mature, we're going to have a lot of clarity. And if we have a much higher long end of the curve, then fantastic, we get to get back to where we were for the first two decades of my career and invest in higher yielding bonds. So on the equity side, I'm not playing it as a trade. On the fixed income side, it's an active conversation, but I like this wait and see. So, so Jim, the, the, the dynamic here also has a bearing on how we treat the economic outlook and, yes. and, even, and even valuations for the stock market overall. Do you like the way things are shaping up with regard to some of those risk-free rates across the curve? Well, I do. I'm going to give the same disclaimer that Jenny claims or said, which is that, you know, I'm not trading the yield curve. That's nothing that I do. However, it does have an impact in terms of, you know, what the what the yield curve is saying about the stock market. And it's been inverted for a long time. I'd like to see that go away. The presumption all along has been that we would go into a recession, that Fed would have to cut rates, and the short end of the curve would come down. We're seeing the exact opposite, and this is good, okay? Mm-hmm. We're seeing positive positive economic activity, positive profits, which is causing the long end of the curve to go up. Now, just think about the numbers here. Let's just say that the Fed does its job right and gets down to, say, 2.3% inflation. And let's say the economy continues to grow it. Hey, call it 2.3%. You put those two numbers together, and that's roughly where the 10-year should trade, 4.6%, okay? If in that same scenario, I don't know, it happens 6, 9, 12 months from now, that we have 2.3% inflation and the Fed is still at 5.3% on the Fed funds rate, it's simply too restrictive for that environment. So they do start to cut rates, but not because of a recession, but because they won the game. In which case, you have a steepening of the yield curve, not because we went into a recession, but we got a pretty darn good outcome, which is the path that we're on right now. So to your question about the setup, I like the way this is moving. All right. 
Well, coming up on the show, we're talking Disney. Those shares are higher following its earnings report. Jim and Jenny actually own it. We'll get their takes on the quarter. Halftime is back after this commercial break. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, market's still positive, but losing some steam here. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Disney shares are moving higher following its third quarter results. The company reporting a revenue miss and its second straight decline in its Disney Plus subscribers, alongside price hikes across all of its flagship streaming products. Uh, an interesting move, Dow Component. It's a, it's a chart that doesn't look good. In <laughs> fact, I remember this morning we had Jason Bazinet over at City, who covers tech and media and telecom, and he said, quote, I would describe the sentiment on Disney as probably the worst it's been in 20 years, and it really has to do with big structural issues. Do we agree on that particular yeah. motion? No, motion? Yes. And, and yeah, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much here. When sentiment is as bad as it can be, you're usually near a bottom. So we bought this a couple years ago at 120. I think every day is your new day, and you need to say, what's the upside from here? So where are we today? We're at 90 bucks a share. The thesis is actually the same. Yeah, we were really wrong. You know, we have enormous patience at Gilman Hill, and I think that tortures my colleagues here, you know, my clients, the viewers. But the patience is enormous. And so the thesis remains intact, which is they should get back to pre-COVID earnings. That's $7 a share. If they get a 20 times multiple on $7 a share, you've got 55% upside. That might take time from here, but we know the shares always move in advance of actually reaching that. What do they need to do to get to $7? They basically need to add $4 billion to revenues, sorry, to earnings. They just cut $5.5 billion through cost savings. They have a lot of levers to pull. They have a lot of, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. I think with Bob Iger back, they can get there. And so you've got, you've got a messy kind of bag right now, right? You've got Orlando slowing, but international super hot. You've got linear TV, pretty terrible. But then as a result, streaming, they can they can start to raise prices. It's messy. But I said this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about it. I think you bet against Disney the way you bet against New York City. The, uh, the loyalty is unbelievable. The customers are unbelievable. The products are unbelievable. They're going to misstep and stumble from time to time. But you just don't bet against it in the long run. Josh, what's interesting about this move here is, is you can say that they've maybe taken a page or so 
out of the Netflix playbook as well with regard to its streaming strategy, raising some prices, doing the password crackdown and, you know, password sharing crackdown. Mm -hmm. Is it enough of maybe at least a short term catalyst to say, hey, we can even capture a fraction of the kind of upside move that we saw in the bottoming out of Netflix and then the resurgence of that stock? I don't think so, um, because Disney's not adding subs, so they're doing this defensively. They have no other way to justify the amount of money they've invested into this other than to try to make more money with it right now. And that's like a very short-term, oh, we'll just raise prices. Okay, you're gonna do that again? you do that next year? Probably not. So you're stuck at 100 million uh, users. It's no surprise why. The content is not good. Um, I think they know that. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important that Iger came back. He's a genius. He can fix that. It's not an overnight fix. And in fact, they can't even film anything now. Even if they had the Jesus show, like that was going to solve all their problems, you can't do it. You got writers on strike, got actors on strike. I I was sitting with a very famous Hollywood producer yesterday for lunch, not to brag. Um, They have a, a show coming out this fall. They're not even allowed to tweet about it. It's a really tough time right now in the content game. It'll resolve itself. It's not forever. The structural issue here, though, is ESPN. That's not a cyclical problem. There were 100 million subs paying $7 a month, whether they watch sports or not, every month for years and years. And now that's more like 70. And it ain't going back to 100. Probably next stop, 50. Cord cutting, so. cord cutting happened very quietly and then all at once, the realization. And that requires now something creative, probably a partnership, maybe something with Apple or Alphabet or whatever, because every time a sports league now comes up for renewal TV rights, Disney is not competing with Fox Sports. Now they're competing with Amazon, YouTube, Apple companies that are trying to sell other things, they can pay literally any amount for the rights of these leagues. So something strategic has to happen. The good news is Iger's the guy. So bottom line, I think there's an opportunity here. I think Jenny will make money. This stock did not lose $150 billion in market cap because the economy slowed. There's something bigger uh, at at play here, and the solution is not going to be, let's just raise prices for Hulu. It's just not going to be the answer. So I'm waiting. I think I'll have a chance to buy it lower. All right, so Jim, ESPN's a good topic of conversation here because it is, in many folks' minds, the linchpin to this whole thing going off right. It just inked a big deal with Penn yeah, getting into that. online gaming. That's that. a growth market for Great. a lot of folks. Does it change the story around the investment thesis on Disney? A, a, a little bit. I mean, first backdrop, as Jenny said, there is a mess, right? This is a messy kitchen that needs to be cleaned up. Josh is pointing out one of the pots that needs to be cleaned up in this kitchen is ESPN. Uh, look, that deal with Penn Sports is interesting. Now, let's put it into perspective. We're talking, uh, Thank you for exactly where it's going, right? One and a half billion over 10 years. So $150 million a year is not even one percent of revenue for Disney. However, pretty high margin. I mean, there's very little that ESPN and Disney needs to do other than allow Penn to use their brand for that $150 million. The only reason this is interesting and not insignificant is it shows a new and creative way of monetizing ESPN, which speaks exactly to what Josh is saying. It needs to be figured out. People are not going to pay whatever they've been paying in a, you know, in a linear bundle through their, through their uh, cable provider. That's not going to happen. You need to find new ways to monetize ESPN. This is a drop in the bucket, but it's creative. Got to give them credit for it. They got to get the gut bottom line is they have to get the games. If you don't get the games, people are not paying. To tune in. They're not going to do the, the ESPN app standalone. They're not going to pay to watch 30 for 30. Number two, they've been trying to, quote, monetize ESPN for 20 years. Remember ESPN Zone? 
It was selling chicken fingers in Times Square. Like I was there. The bottom line <laughs> is people want ESPN for the games. The game's going to get more expensive. I do think it will be an upside catalyst if and when they do a deal with a, a larger tech company, media company, whatever we're calling them these days. Um, but if they don't do one, it's going to be a tough stock to be in. Just my personal opinion. I think there's an opportunity, just not yet. All right. That's the Disney trade here. Let's get to the headlines now, news-wise, with Pippa Stevens. Good afternoon, Pippa. Hey, Dom. Hawaii officials are fearing the worst as the sun comes up in Maui. They say the death toll from the wildfires raging on the island will likely grow from 36. Emergency management officials told ABC News search and rescue teams are fanning out in hopes of finding survivors. They said there are three active fires still burning today, and they're only just now gaining ground on containing them. A presidential candidate in Ecuador was assassinated following a political rally in the capital just days before voters go to the polls. Police say Fernando Villavicencio, who was outspoken against corruption, was killed and nine others were shot last night. According to authorities, one suspect died after exchanging gunfire with police and six people have been detained in connection with the assassination. And a successful space tourism trip today in New Mexico as Virgin Galactic took off with six people bound for space. Unlike previous flights, three of the passengers are not astronauts or company employees. They're civilians who bought or won tickets to the stars. Passengers included a former Olympian and a mother-daughter duo. The 90-minute flight took passengers briefly into space where they experienced three minutes of weightlessness before descending back to Earth. Dom, back to you. All right, Pippa Stevens with those new headlines. Thank you very much. We've got more committee moves to get to, including a new buy for Jenny, the name she's betting on coming up when halftime returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back on the halftime report. By the way, the Dow is up 100 points. That represents near-session lows at this point. Uh, The halftime chart of the day right now is Capri Holdings, which is surging. The home of the Versace brands, also Jimmy Choo, Michael Kors, is going to be acquired by Coach's parent company, Tapestry, Mm -hmm. in an all-cash deal valued at $8.5 billion from an enterprise value standpoint. That translates to 57 bucks a share in cash. Now, Tapestry shares are pulling back on the news. Maybe no surprise, given that they're the acquirer in this one. Sticking with the retail space as well, Jenny, you just made a new buy with regard to another apparel retailer type name. What is it and why? Okay, so last week we added VF Corp to the portfolio. VF Corp owns Vans, North Face, Timberland, Dickies, Smart Wool, and on the very high-end side, um, they own a company called a brand called Supreme. It's super interesting because the question that I asked myself when we were researching this is, how do you justify buying a consumer product company right now when we all know that the consumer is likely to slow, not you know not dry up and go away, but likely to slow and continue to shift 
spending away from goods and to travel and leisure. But the thing is here, this was a pandemic beneficiary, and we all know the pendulum swings too far. Shares ran way up. They doubled between the spring of 2020 and 2021, and then the pendulum swung too far in the opposite direction. So we're actually down 80% from the high. And like I was saying about Disney, the starting point is today. So where are we today? 6% dividend yield. Management actually changed, uh, decreased the dividend about a year ago and is standing super strongly behind what they have now because they think they'll be able to grow it from here. 6% dividend yield, trading at less than 10 times earnings. In the next couple years, earnings are expected to grow in the high double-digit range, like 17 18%, as earnings normalize back to just kind of a normal trend, a normal level. So you've got great earnings growth ahead and extremely why good management down 80, this, Why is that 80%? What because, happened? Because it went too far up. That can't be. It is. It's at 2010 levels. No, no, because you saw this with like with. What are all, their brands? Is this okay. North Face? North this is North Face, Timberland, Timberlands. Yep. But okay. Josh, this stock Josh, is trading like they invented a new type of cancer. I've never. Josh, it's the worst chart I've ever seen all week. Oh my God, I'm going to strangle you. Yes. No, you're okay. going to buy it. You're going to double down on it. <laughs> because you love time, a bad chart. Everybody well, knows you love on. a bad chart. I, I don't know if Josh is baiting me or not. If he I is, totally is. okay. There's a hook behind it. Last time, thank you. The last time Josh saw the worst chart he'd ever seen in his life, it was Stan. Stanley Black and Decker. And frankly, it was the same story, yeah. which is pandemic beneficiary, earnings get you super pumped forward. Thank you. you. Did, you did. Stocks up 25% That's from there. Right. But it's the same kind of thing. What we've seen in the pandemic beneficiaries is they had this huge earnings bump, right? Like these guys were earning almost four bucks a share a couple of years ago. Now it's two. But now from here, it normalizes. So you have to be a human. Like you can't be a you know, a program trade or, an, or a robot, you know, and just say, oh, earnings were four and now they're two, everything's terrible. All right, we'll keep, you we'll, need to look forward. We'll keep an eye on that one. By, by the Gee, way, I, by, by the way sources so familiar tell me that Josh Brown's spending on Supreme branded merchandise <laughs> down. is 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 We don't do corporate. Healthy. Hey, uh, before we go to the break, I want to give a shout out to Steve Weiss. Let's throw up a chart of Baba. Was this his uh, final trade yesterday? Ah, uh, you know. I mean, this is just magnificent What's work. What's happening? Here? Look at this thing. It's up this five is, and a half percent. This is Have you ever? Bizarro, you world, bizarro world right now. This is something special. All right, up next. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get it. Get it. Earnings drop. Okay, up next we got an earnings pop for one of. Jim's Holdings Plus. We've got bullish calls on two tech names ahead of earnings reports. Halftime is back on this multi-pronged show after this break. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Wynn Resorts is heading higher right now. The company beating on the top and bottom lines in your earnings report of the day. Jim, you're in on this one, and it was, I remember, a call of the day not so long ago. I think it was a final trade. It was a final trade. And, you know, unlike Steve, they actually have me on the show when it's a final oh, trade that goes that's up. that's rough. That's rough. I know. That was a little harsh. Sorry, Steve, Bro, but we love you. He's coming to kill you. All right, back to the show. Back right. to the show. Um, Win. Look, win for, like, the third quarter in a row has just blown out uh, on on all fronts, Macau, Las Vegas, uh, Boston, and they continue to show signs of good demand. Here's the interesting thing, right? The stock, which had a torrid run through the second half of last year, has been basically flat for the last six months. That's a consolidation. Josh can tell you all about it. Consolidations get resolved, right? Stock goes higher or it goes lower. I'm looking at these operating results from Wynn, and I think the stock's going higher. There's no indication that the good results from Macau, Las Vegas, or Boston are going to end any time soon. All right. There's the call on win there. It's up about 3.5% on the day's trade so far. Now to some of the calls of the day. First up, you've got Morgan Stanley out with a bullish note on NVIDIA ahead of earnings in just a couple of weeks. The firm's calling NVIDIA its top pick within semiconductors. 
Uh, NVIDIA is a stock, Josh, that you own and have been riding for a while, so congrats on that. It's been the best performer in the S&P. So I am very good at this. So NVIDIA, it, look, NVIDIA, this is the quarter that they pre that they did, they did that like very dramatic, oh, no, we're not going to make $7 billion. Actually, it's going to be 11 That's Remember that day and then the stock? So this is what they're about to report. That, so we already have some sense of how good the quarter is. The thing is, I don't think they could do it again. Uh, like, I don't think they're going to give you that same thing next quarter. I don't know what the expectations are in the stock, but I think a lot of new money has come into the story, a lot of hot money. And maybe if they don't have their doors blown off, maybe they, they take a profit. So I would just be a little bit careful. Look at this thing, a uh, super microcomputer that reported on Tuesday night. It went down like $100 a share. Uh, this was an AI stock, much smaller than NVIDIA, 18 billion market cap. But I just think people should understand what could happen when expectations get too carried away. So I'm long NVIDIA. I'm not talking it down. I hope it all works out great. I just don't feel as excited about it as I did when they already gave us what the, the numbers were going to be. Some folks don't feel excited about 47 times forward earnings. Well, on that it's been expensive now. forever, so right. get over well, that. Okay, so Palo Alto Networks is also getting a bullish call ahead of its earnings next week. We've got Goldman Sachs saying that the setup is improving into that print. Jenny, you are into Palo Alto. Right. We've owned this for a really long time, and we agree with the Goldman note. What we think that comes out of the earnings call next week is basically they report earnings in line, but the guidance is excellent. And they say, hey, we're likely to grow revenues at 19% CAGR through 2026, which is unbelievable. The entire investment thesis here is insatiable, perpetual demand for network security. This is a really wonderful place to be. All right. That's Palo Alto Networks there. We, uh, coming up next on the show, we have Mike Santoli joining us with this midday word. A look at the markets right now. The market's kind of bouncing around, but we're off our worst levels of the session. Still up at 177 points in the Dow. Halftime is back in two. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. It's time now for senior markets commentator Mike Santoli's Midday Word. Mike, this is a, in an interesting day developing given the context around macro right now. Yep. We've been talking a lot so far today about this kind of rotation that we're starting to see out of certain growth industries into certain value industries. Sure. And we wonder whether or not this is just the beginning stages of a longer trend. It's been underway for a little while. I mean, energy is beating tech over the three-month look back. So that's something that's been in train for a bit. Uh, I think it's a lot to ask of the rest of the market to take up every inch of slack that's left by, you know, the pullbacks and the corrections in the big cap NASDAQ stocks, I think it nets out to a stock market, right? So we've crossed 4,500 on the S&P each of the last six trading sessions. Um, That rally this morning was like a quick, okay, let's relax for a minute because CPI came in completely consistent with the soft landing story. I think the problem is soft landing evidence is no longer news. That's the premise. That's the baseline assumption of most people. We're trading where we were trading before the July, meaning June CPI release. So I feel as if uh, everything's happening in the context of digesting a huge move through July. And now it becomes a little more of a, uh, a sort of a choose your path moment. Are we going to have persistent disinflation? Feds called off. Yields have, uh, have, uh, have peaked. That's okay. The question is at this valuation, is that an incremental reason to, be, to see aggressive buying? Is it not out of the realm of reason, though, to watch a, a, a red-hot industry group like, say, semiconductors pull back and shake hands, so to speak, oh, yeah. with its 50-day average price on a rolling basis? Without these a things, and, and by the way, it's not to say that that's bearish. It just means that these things were going up so far so fast 
that they maybe had to take a breather? No, there's no doubt that they have to. I mean, even the NASDAQ 100, which is right back there. I was just looking back on a three-year chart of the NASDAQ 100. When it touched the 50-day moving average on the way up in 2021, it broke it frequently for a little while and chopped around and came back. So you can't really infer that um, that it's anything more than routine. The issue I think everybody has is pullbacks are routine until they're not. And, you know, the, they, they all kind of start the same and they don't all end the same. So I think that's the mode we're in. At the well, moment. you know what's going to happen is tomorrow night mm. at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh-oh. It is a Friday break and it's routine. August. Yeah. Yes, we are, because you're seeing both those handsome gentlemen there on your screen right now. We've got Mike Santoli on my right, Josh Brown on my left. They're on your screen. CNBC's taking stock. They're going to look back at the whole week of trading. 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you want, you can sit between us then, too. You know what? I'm I'm going to watch from the safety of my couch with a a cold beer. (laughs) Anyway, all right, guys. Thanks very much, Mike. We'll have much more on the portfolio moves moving around in the market with the committee. They are coming back now up on Halftime Report after this commercial break. All right, we're back with more committee moves here. Two sells from Jenny Harrington. What are we talking about here? Okay, so first I sold Fortress Aviation. The ticker was FTAI. I bought this at the end of the pandemic, November 2021, realized a 90% gain. I used it to fund the purchase of VF Corp because the opportunity cost of holding Fortress, even though it's great, I think there's significantly less total capital appreciation on that than there will be from from, uh, from VF Corp. The other one, which you all talk about a lot, was Madiv. I bought this about not even a full year ago. It turned out to be a real disappointment. They spun off their rolled paper business and in doing so cut the dividend, but also announced a big share buyback. Shares popped the 13%. I said, let's mitigate the losses and get the heck out of that. All right. So FTA Aviation and Madif Holdings, two sells from Jenny. Thank you very much sure. for those updates there. We've got final trades coming up the show from the committee coming up. So keep it right here. Uh, Dow is up about 92 points. So again, just near session lows right now. We'll be back in two. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. We are back in time for final trades. Jim Labenthal, we'll start with you. Bristol Myers announced a uh, $4 billion accelerated share repurchase. They're buying shares at an eight times multiple of earnings, which means an earnings yield of 12.5%. That's what they're investing in, their own shares, and they don't have to pay their extraordinary, excuse me, their exorbitant dividend on those shares either. This is a win-win. All right, Jenny Harrington. Okay, National Retail Properties. They announced earnings last week. They were perfectly in line. You've got a 5.61% dividend yield. They increased the dividend super consistently by 2.7%, and they increased their acquisition guidance. So really solid, under-the-radar, good company. No shares up 1% so far today. And then Josh Brown. Yeah. Uh, Toast reported, and this is a stock that I'm pretty much right where my average cost is. Uh, It's had a rough couple of weeks, but they had an amazing uh, response to the last earnings. It's now almost a billion-dollar quarterly run rate, revenue run rate company, and they'll be profitable earlier than expected. So a bunch of price target raises on the street, and I'm staying long. I got to tell you, half the restaurants I've been to lately all have toast as their it's point It's becoming an industry system. standard, and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the stock. All right, that does it for us on Halftime. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.